From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election watchers say a last-minute Republican wave could help GOP candidates in several close races across the country. But that may not be the case in Colorado. It's almost like we have some inoculation or some vaccine that is inoculating us from this national trend, which sure looks to be unfolding. Plus, we'll hear from a voter who's trying to balance her views on issues that cross party platforms. And why do some candidates run when they know winning is a long shot? It's never a waste of time. I, this is what I've always wanted to do, is go out and, and meet the people in my community. And win or lose, it's not a waste. Later, a documentary that explores in depth the experiences of Black people in Boulder. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The 2022 campaign season is almost over. Votes will be counted Tuesday in races statewide, including U.S. Senate, Colorado's governor, legislative contests, and ballot initiatives. For one last look before the polls close, we're joined by our regular political analyst. Eric Sonderman is a columnist and former public policy consultant. Sarah Hackadorn is a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Happy to be with you. Hi, Eric. Hello, Chandra. Nationally, the experts seem to think that the tide is turning toward Republicans, that they may win majorities in the U.S. Senate or the House or potentially both. Do you see a similar shift toward the Republicans here in Colorado? And if so, what races do you think might be affected? Sarah, let's start with you. Sure. Great question. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm imagining things or not, but over the past week, (laughs) I've just felt this a bit of a deck reshuffle kind of around the country where I am seeing this shift towards Republican candidates. And I'm particularly watching Senate races around the country because I think the House is going to switch control to a Republican control. Even just looking at the reapportionment process that we've gone through in the last two years with Colorado, Montana, Texas gaining two, Florida all gaining seats. Mm. And most of those will likely go red So right there is four or five seats that the Republicans need to take control. So I'm watching Senate races and I'm watching these toss-up races, which I think have shifted a little bit in the Republicans' favor. And I'm talking about Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I honestly do not see the same shift happening in Colorado. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's a nature of our candidates or not, or maybe just our unaffiliated voters, but I'm not seeing the same sort of definite shift in Republican candidates' favor. Eric, what are your thoughts? Do you feel this trend toward Republicans is uh, showing up in Colorado? Well, once again, Chandra, if you were inviting Sarah and myself on the show expecting a great point-counterpoint debate, you're going to be disappointed because I think we see, at least in this respect, the world very similarly. Mm. I see this disconnect between the national tide and what I think is likely to develop and likely to unfold 
in Colorado. On a national level, what I look to is which side is expanding the playing field and which side is narrowing the playing field. And in state after state, Republicans are now targeting and playing in congressional districts that they didn't think were within their grasp maybe a Mm. few months ago, where Democrats are entrenching and and limiting their playing field, trying to desperately hold on to some seats that they thought were probably safe a few months ago. That does not spell good news for Democrats across the country. The 538 publication just within the last day or two, which a few months ago had rated the Democrats' chance at maintaining control of the U.S. Senate at near 70% likelihood, and now it's down to 49% likelihood. So in other words, basically a coin flip. Yet here in Colorado, I don't have the full reason. It's almost like we have some inoculation or some vaccine that is inoculating us from this national trend, which uh, sure looks to be unfolding. But in Colorado, you just don't get the sense that Republicans have everything going for them to overcome the built-in disadvantage they have. They're operating in a increasingly blue state. So I'd like to hone in a bit on the state's most competitive U.S. House race. It's the new congressional district, which runs from Greeley down into some of Denver's northern suburbs, including Thornton. Republican State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer of Weld County is going up against Democratic State Representative Yadira Caraveo of Thornton. Eric, What are the factors that could help decide that race? I think that race is a placeholder, if you will, for both what is going to develop in Colorado and uh, what is going on across the country. That was a seat that was designed, it was shaped to be the ultimate competitive district, and it is. If you turn on your television, as I've written, you need to wear a hazmat suit because the ads are (laughs) nasty on, on, Mm. on both sides. Uh, let me put it this way, Chandra. If Republicans are to win anything in Colorado next Tuesday, it has to start in the 8th Congressional District. If Barbara Kirkmeyer does not win that seat, Barbara Kirkmeyer being the Republican candidate, they will not win anything else of consequence on the ballot. If Kirkmeyer wins that seat by a decent margin of a few points, then maybe there is a bit of a Republican wave and maybe it will be an interesting election night and maybe some other races come into play. But that is the bellwether in poker terms. That is the tell. If Caraveo is able to withstand all the Republican spending in that district and walk away and emerge with a victory, then Democrats are going to run the table as they have for a number of years. Mm, the poker reference. <laughs> You're pulling all out, pulling the cards out. <laughs> so, Sarah, tell me a little bit about this district, like who lives there and how that might affect the outcome of this race. So as Eric has said, this is a really competitive, was drawn as a really competitive district. It's our brand new district. I do think... Uh, I hate to say this. I think all of our districts are a little bit off here. We use the last two presidential races as our baseline for redrawing our congressional districts. And I think former President Trump swayed the numbers um, in both of those presidential elections, specifically for more moderate Republicans, moderate Republican women. So I think this district is probably a little bit more Republican than it's shown to be on the numbers. I do think it's an interesting one. It has the largest Hispanic 
representation or largest Hispanic numbers of any district in the state. It also has oil and gas development as a huge employer mm. uh, for the district. So this is going to be very difficult for uh, Carveo to kind of go against her party who was talking about climate change. She's going to have to walk a really thin line here. And I'm not sure she's done it up till now. And um, to your point, um, my understanding is that that district is 40% Latino and has an 8% population of other people of color. And it's designed to be a very competitive district. Eric, do you want to add to that? No, I think your numbers are, are very close. That assumes, of course, that Latinos vote as a monolithic block, which they do not. And increasingly, we have seen that around the country where Republicans have been able to make inroads, even inroads at the margins, among the Latino vote. Yes, Caraveo is Latina herself. Yes, that should help her somewhat. But as Sarah pointed out, there are other factors, particularly the dominance of oil and gas interests in that district, which work to Kirkmeyer's advantage. If Kirkmeyer, she's regarded as the favorite, the polls I've heard about or seen show her with a marginal advantage, certainly within margin for error, certainly not anything that is decisive. But uh, Kirkmeyer needs to hold serve, if you will if Republicans are to have any chance on other ballots, other elections across the state. My supposition is that she will, but that might be all the Republicans really get come election night. Sarah, if the Republicans gain control of either or both houses of Congress, what does that mean for President Biden? So I'm one of those social scientists that thinks divided government is a better government. I think it better reflects voters' policy preferences. We're not a single party country, and so we shouldn't be a single party in control of our government. Um, I think President Biden has some real, real potential here in doing similar to what President Clinton did post-1994 midterms when he worked with Speaker Gingrich to really get things done. Mm-hmm. That potential is there. Do I know if he's going to take advantage of that? I can't say. Um, I'm hopeful in December the lame duck Congress can finally pass the fiscal year 2023 appropriation bills, um, which were due October 1st. And I'll be honest, if a student tried to turn something in two and a half months late, I probably wouldn't accept it. (laughs) Um, And maybe, maybe, just maybe we can see some bipartisan work on immigration, inflation, energy, It's going to depend on what the makeup of the House and Senate look like, though. But President Biden has some real opportunity here to do some policymaking. Let's turn to voter turnout. In these last days before the election, some voter turnout trends are emerging. Compared to the last midterm election in 2018, overall turnout is down, but unaffiliated voting is up significantly. Eric, any sense of what might be driving unaffiliated voters to the polls this year? Uh, It's a good question, and I don't have a definitive answer for that, Chandra. I mean, unaffiliated are growing as a percentage of the population in Colorado. I think when all is said and done and every vote is counted next Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or whenever that that may be, Mm -hmm. uh, my supposition is the turnout pattern will look rather similar to the last off-year election we had in Colorado, that being 2018, maybe Republicans 
will get a bounce of a point or two in the turnout uh, relative to Democrats. But they're going to need more than a bounce of a point or two when you flash back to 2018 and consider that Jared Polis was elected governor in that election by north of 10 points. And all of those key races from attorney general, secretary of state, none of them were close. It was a, a Democratic route year. So I'm looking at those turnout numbers, and while you know we still have a number of days to go for voters to get their ballots in to be tabulated, I am not seeing the kind of dramatic reversal or dramatic change mm. that is going to lead to a different result in Colorado, a result different than what we have come to expect over the last close to two decades. Sarah, what are your thoughts on this issue of voter turnout? Uh, I understand that turnout is down among Democrats. And do you think this could be because President Trump hasn't been in the spotlight, so to speak, to energize them to get to the polls? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I'm not sure if this early turnout is definitely telling us as much as we want it to. I do think voter enthusiasm is down. Um and whether that's positive enthusiasm or negative enthusiasm with the absence of a President Trump um, in the picture. And unaffiliated is up, sure, but they're still underperforming their overall percentage in the electorate. So they accounted for 36% of the low numbers that have turned in, but they're 45% in active registered voters. So they're still underperforming. And for the first time in six years, President Trump is not a factor in this race. And I think unaffiliateds are still trying to figure out what that means to them and what they think about the candidates without President Trump there. Um, if they were previously maybe Republican voters and they've left the Republican Party for the last six years with Trump there, I think they're quietly coming, what we call in politics, quietly maybe coming home, but it's taking them a while to get there. Eric, do you think there will be a rush of last-minute in-person voting, given some of the conspiracy theories and election misinformation that's circulating out there? I'm dubious. I think uh, certainly there will be some people showing up uh, at either early voting locations or election day voting locations, although that is far the exception in Colorado. That is not the norm. The norm is to sit at your kitchen table and fill out your ballot and either put it in the mail, although that date has now passed and mm -hmm. you need to find a ballot drop box, but those are not hard to find in all corners of the city or all corners of the state. Uh, no, to your question, Chandra, yes, there is that election disinformation out there. And yes, there are, of course, people who fall prey to it and will react accordingly. But I think it's very much at the margins. Sarah, what do you think about that? Do you expect a lot of last minute in-person voting? I think there'll be a certain number of Republican voters who do vote in person um, because they've been told or are convinced our Colorado system is not secure and they only trust voting in person. So, yeah, I think we will see some election day voting going on. Um, mm -hmm. And I hope that after next Tuesday that they realize that our system in Colorado is safe and secure. Um, I'd like to return to a little bit more normalcy on that. So, yeah, I do think we're going to see some Republican voters voting in person. And I would love to encounter some of those at polling places on 
Tuesday and, and maybe a guy could sell him some swampland in Florida because they're obviously <laughs> uh, dupes out there. And uh, Sarah's right that there are people like that. But uh, again, we'll see what the number is. Continuing on with you, Eric, um, are there any sleeper races out there, perhaps what are called the down-ballot statewide races like Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer? Do you see any potential surprises or in the legislature? No, the two that I'm probably watching most closely, I know uh, Attorney General Phil Weiser is nervous about his race simply because crime is such a dominant issue in Colorado these days. And even though the attorney general doesn't have all that much direct authority over criminal justice issues, does handle appellate cases, but it's not like a frontline prosecutor or a frontline sheriff or cop. Nonetheless, people associate those responsibilities with the office of attorney general. And so I know Weiser is worried about some kind of backlash based around those issues. Obviously, the Secretary of State's race has been hot between incumbent Jenna Griswold, Republican Pam Anderson. For all of the hits that Griswold has taken, and there have been many, they've been hits in the press, they've been hits on the editorial pages, a lot of editorial pages making Pam Anderson the only Republican anywhere on the ballot they've endorsed. But nonetheless, if you turn on your television, Jenna Griswold is there with millions of dollars of well-produced advertising, and Pam Anderson is nowhere to be found on the airwaves. And at the end of the day, I think, sadly, that makes much more impact than all the editorials and all the news stories combined. So again, I agree with Eric. I'm watching the Secretary of State race for similar reasons, um, because current Secretary of State Griswold has come under pressure, and Pam Anderson was a really good recruitment for the Republican Party. But yeah, name ID, name identification matters in these races. And I think Anderson's is low. And I think that's going to make a difference on Election Day. Sarah and Eric, thank you. Much fun, as always. Thank you so much. Sarah Hagedorn is a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Eric Sonderman is a columnist and a former public policy consultant. Both will be lending their perspectives as part of CPR's live coverage of election 2022, which will include election night and post-election wrap-up on the day after. When we come back, why do some candidates run for seats that they likely won't win? And a voter navigates the political divide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature, but Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org. Many voters say they don't fit neatly into partisan boxes. We've been sharing interviews with some of those voters on Colorado Matters, and we found that there are a lot of nuances that drive people's thinking at the polls. Today, a voter who's trying to balance her views on issues and candidates that cross party lines. My name is Pam Giordano. I live in Southeast Denver. I've been in Colorado for uh, over 40 years. I've lived here longer than any place else. I'm a retired teacher 
I taught business at a community college for a couple of years. I was a substitute teacher. And uh, after that, I taught AVID, which is a college prep and critical thinking class. I am solidly unaffiliated. I don't feel like either party speaks for me. I think both have gotten so far to their respective boundaries on the left and on the right. And those are not my views. I'm very pro-choice and I'm old enough to remember before Roe v. Wade. This is the first year I've really had to think about abortion as a bigger issue of freedom that we, I won't say take for granted, but that we knew we had. So it wasn't really something I thought about. I think the Supreme Court's decision this year was a real shock for a lot of us. And I hope that states will do what they can to protect women's rights. So Abortion is an important issue for me. I think that uh, women deserve those freedoms, but it's not the only issue. I'm very concerned about the economy as a retiree. Uh, I'm not going to get one of these new jobs with an $8,000 signing bonus. So I have to live within the financial parameters I have. And, you know, the cost of everything is going up pretty significantly. And I think that's for everybody. You know, 8% inflation is an awful lot. And I can see how that's uh, affected the cost in our daily life, whether it's groceries or gas or housing. We live in a older home and it's uh, the neighborhood is going downhill and crime's a bigger issue and we'd like to move but we would literally have to double our house payment to live in the parts of the metro area that we'd prefer and you know as retirees we're not going to do that so you know we have to be careful and I would support candidates who are good stewards of the economy who understand what can be more inflationary, what can be less inflationary. So that's a hot button for me. Smaller government is very important to me. I've seen, especially during the pandemic, how big government has gotten and how restrictive and how the power is in a a very few hands. And uh, I don't think that's been effective, especially since we've had vaccines and better therapies. We don't need the restriction that uh, government's put on us. So I'd like to see uh, government be a little more hands off. So, yeah, all those are issues that don't necessarily align with one party or another. It is going to be frustrating for me because there are candidates that I think would be more supportive of a woman's right to choose, but they would be people who were more interested in expanding government, which I don't agree with. So it is hard. And I do feel like would I really vote for a candidate who wasn't bedrock pro-choice? 
but I may. I don't know for sure yet. It's still a matter for a lot of hard thinking. I'll probably vote for candidates from both parties. I can't really think of any time where I voted just straight one side or the other. You know, it's not so simple these days. There are a lot of issues where maybe your personal views are divergent from one side to the other. So I think you just have to uh, think it through and make the choice that you think you're going to be able to live with. Pam Giordano lives in Denver. Our thanks to CPR's Rachel Estabrook and Shane Rumsey for producing that interview. The reality is, every election, there are a lot of candidates who run with little chance of winning. Still, they spend their time knocking on doors, trying to connect with voters in any way that they can, sometimes with little success. CPR's Caitlin Kim spoke with some of them about why they do it. Come on, hands in. Oh, uh, we're doing hands in. So we're going to do DT on three, okay? One, two, three, DT! DT is David Torres. He's the Democrat running for Congress in Colorado's 5th Congressional District against GOP incumbent Doug Lamborn. On a perfect fall Saturday, he and a small group of canvassers are going door-to-door in Colorado Springs to get out the vote. Is it Kevin and Suzanne? Listen, folks, I'm not here to take up too much of your time. My name is David Torres. I'm actually running for Congress here in El Paso County. Nice to meet you. Great. Nice to meet you, my man. Uh, Torres has a big problem, though. No Democrat has ever won the seat since it was created in the early 70s. It's a plus 20 Republican lean. When Torres told people he wanted to run for the seat, what he heard wasn't exactly encouraging. You're, you're crazy. Uh, this is this is silly. People have tried it. They've never succeeded. He decided to forge ahead for a simple reason. This wasn't about an easy road for me. This was about my community, and my community is El Paso County. And there was no way that if I was going to run for something as important as Congress, that I wouldn't run for my community, for my hometown. There are a lot of challenges in this kind of race. Candidates get little support from state and national parties. Reporters like me rarely cover these races because the outcome is, well, usually a given. And a lot of times they can't get their opponent to acknowledge them, which is the case for Republican congressional candidate Stephen Monahan, who's running in the 6th Congressional District. People want to ask, hey, why is this not happening? Why aren't you debating? Because he won't say yes. The he Monahan is referring to is Democratic incumbent Jason Crow. In most safe congressional races, incumbents are not debating their opponents. It doesn't bother me. I'm not offended that people think that it's a, it's a lost cause district or it's all tied up for this. I, I believe the American people will change their mind. But people can't change their minds if there's no one for them to vote for. So parties still push to find and feel candidates, regardless of the odds, because it is important for voters to have another option, however unlikely that option is to win. Democracy, after all, is about political competition, and a party can't just seed the field. Of course, there are also third-party candidates playing on that same field. I'm very thankful to be here. Uh, This campaign for me is going to be in person. On a Friday night, Brian Piotr is sitting in a living room in East Denver, making his pitch for Senate as the Libertarian candidate. 
He tells the small gathering he wants to be the spoiler in this race, siphoning votes from GOP candidate Joe O'Day because of O'Day's moderate position on abortion. This is, this is something I really believe in. I think that we need to send a message this year that says, uh, life first. You abandon that and we will abandon you. In Colorado's 2020 Senate race, the Libertarian got less than 2 percent of the vote. Despite the hurdles, Piotr says he likes his chances. I have a better chance of winning than people who play the lotto, and I know a lot of people play the lotto. I don't. This is my version of that. It's not just candidates willing to take a gamble in these long-shot races. Some voters are, too. Back in Colorado Springs, voter Mary Sprunger phrase is registered with the Green Party. She says what it comes down to is she doesn't want to vote for somebody when she doesn't agree with them just because they're with the major party. I also know that voting for somebody who will never win, um, to me, it's still a vote. It's saying this is what I would like to see. And I know that there's very few people who are willing to go for that. Torres, the Democratic candidate, spoke with Sprunger phrase briefly, long enough to get her vote. There's no Green Party candidate in that race. Instead of lottery odds, Torres says he's in this for the long haul. He's committed to running at least one more time for the seat. If I talk to 20 people today, that's 20 people who have met me, and I have that for the next two and a half years, if you will. It's never a waste of time to me. It's never a waste of time. I, this is what I've always wanted to do, is go out and, and meet the people in my community. And win or lose, it's not a waste. In other words, Torres is betting on hard work and time all in the hopes of moving the political needle, even if it's only a couple of points. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th, but you may vote any time before then because Colorado uses a ballot-by-mail system. It's too late to return your ballot via the Postal Service. At this point, your best option is to use a designated drop box. Be sure to check out the candidates and the issues in our voter guide at CPR.org. When we come back, a documentary that explores in depth what some people say it's like to be black in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Who will be Colorado's next governor, the next U.S. senator, and who will represent us in the House of Representatives? This November, you get to choose. You also get to decide 11 questions from legalizing psychedelic mushrooms to cutting the income tax. When your ballot leaves you with more questions than answers, Colorado Public Radio is here to help in both English and Spanish in the Voter's Guide at CPR.org. One of the more than 200 movies featured at this year's Denver Film Festival explores in depth the experiences of some black people in Boulder. It's called This Is Not Who We Are. The not, by the way, is in brackets. The documentary is directed by Katrina Miller and Barrett Strong. We spoke about the project in September. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Katrina, what inspired you to make this film? Uh, Well, it's just years of lived experience as a Black person, but it felt a lot more intense once I moved to Boulder from a very diverse military town just feeling a sense of isolation and just wondering why uh, there were so few African Americans around. And it wasn't enough for me for people to just say, well, that's just what it is. That's just Colorado. 
I'm from a little town inside of Colorado Springs. But again, we had people from all walks of life there. And I didn't visit CU Boulder before I went to school there. It was like, I have the grades. This has the best journalism program for what I want to do with my life in the state of Colorado. I need in-state to do tuition. I was just so shocked getting there. And it's more than um, just being a different color. It's just also how you're treated as well, based on being around people who've never even been around Black people before. My college roommate, um, I had two of them, my first semester at CU, told me straight to my face, yeah, I've only seen Black people on TV playing sports. So I thought everything's wow. been going good for you guys, right? And it's things like that that I had to deal with. Yeah, that the lack of exposure definitely was apparent. And it was also, I think you did a amazing job of expressing that in the film, like the climate of the campus and just Boulder in general. So Barrett, let's bring you in here. What about you? Why this project? You know, in my personal journey, some years before we started this project, I was educating myself more about racism as an institutional force in our country. What did the federal government do? You know, what do the banks do? What do the housing industry do? What does, you know, what do schools do? And then I was looking at my own racism too. Like you start looking at yourself and going, do I have bias? What formed me? Where am I from? You know, I really grew up someplace more diverse. And I didn't like the fact that when it came to Boulder as an undergrad, I encountered more racism here than I had where I grew up. So we were already working on it when Zaid Atkinson had his, you know, terrifying experience with Boulder police. And that was what broke open the, the videography part of the film because we were out there in the streets with everybody else. So what happened after we started making the film, which furthered my education was I was full of, you know, white privilege and enjoying my easy life when I realized we're causing all this harm to our youth here, that they're suffering, that the young people especially black young people are thinking, I don't want to stay here when I turn 18, I got to go. And then my pain that had already preexisted deepened in a new and more localized and more personalized way, like I'm contributing to this. And as you mentioned, a through line in the film is the story of Zaid Atkinson. I remember that incident and I did hear the reporting, but honestly, I don't know that I had ever really seen the footage, especially as it was drawn out in the film. And it's Really compelling. You show many long minutes of the police body camera tape where it's just excruciating listening to this exchange between Zaid and these officers. And they're essentially just challenging his right to be at the building where we learn that he works and lives at. You know, he, he works at the property and he lives there. Let's listen to a clip from the film. And at the end, your voice comes in as the narrator, Katrina. Have a Why seat, please. Why would you think that you could tase me? I'm freaking picking up trash on my property. I need to confirm it. Where I live. There's a sign. I'm not doing anything illegal. The more that I look at the video of that day, the more it feels like Zaid was fighting for his right to belong. Who belongs in Boulder has been a struggle for a long time. So, Katrina, can you say more about why it was important to center so much of the film around this incident with Mr. Atkinson? It was important to center Zaid because it's really a good, uh, good is not really the right word, but it's an example of how hard it was just for me to believe that 
this man who is complying, Zaid, he's doing what he's asked of, was still continually being asked and harassed. He was minding his business. He was doing something good for his community. It didn't matter, though. He was stopped. He was profiled because of the color of his skin. And this happened so many times, not just in Boulder. It makes no sense how the word of a white person is what's taken at face value, is what's believed. When Zaid was producing physical evidence and telling the officer, I can just get into the building, he was not believed. It wasn't until the white land manager came in and just said, oh, no, he's fine. It was all said and done. There needs to really be some change in policy. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be more consequences. People need to be more forthright. And we should note that the city of Boulder settled a civil suit with Zaid Atkinson over this incident. The city never that entire time um, in this settlement said that this incident had to do with race. And they said it was because there were no racial epitaphs. And I still stand that there don't need to be racial epitaphs for this to be racism. So, again, it's missing the mark in that way to not acknowledge it for what it was. Just admit that this was profiling so that we can fix that issue. Thanks for pointing that out. Barrett, um, it becomes almost a running joke in the film that Boulder has repeatedly come up with task forces and committees focused on studying ways to become more inclusive and ways to embrace diversity. What were you trying to convey by featuring that? Well, it went really well with a brilliant quote by one of our film subjects, Dr. Thomas Windham, about how we form a committee. He's been here 50 years, so he's an eyewitness to this, and he's also been very involved in, in uh, education. Um, we wanted to say, it, we even if we go out and march for Zaid, which we did, if we just fall back in our old habits, and another character uh, who's a youth character talks about how nobody who's white is really bothered. We're all comfortable. So... I feel like we as a community have very old habits and habits of privilege. Like there's so many wealthy people in Boulder and yet there also are a bunch that aren't. And um, the wealthy people like it that way. We don't want apartment buildings in our neighborhoods and blah, blah, blah. So there's so many levels of change that have to happen for us to be a different community. And the film is an invitation to people to join in on that, to really uh, let's talk, let's, let's strategize, let's get to work. Katrina, the title of your film, as we said, is This Is Not Who We Are. What inspired the name and does it in any way speak to a contradiction you see between the stereotype of the bolder liberal and the less inclusive place you and many other people of color describe? As with art, what I like to do with this title is let people interpret it as they want to their meaning is going to be correct. And, and it's a lot of self-projection will come on to that meeting of that title. But I'll say for me, what's most prevalent is that we are not the community that people think that we are based on 
what's out there in the media based on the stories that come out of Boulder, all the headlines about Boulder being one of the number one cities to live in the U.S. Um, that's not who we are, but we can change that not. We can easily change that not. It doesn't have to be there. I could go on and on with different ways to interpret this title, but that's one of the aspects to make people think about that. Barrett, I'm really curious to hear what you would have to say about that. Well, I agree with you. I think, I, I like the fact that the title's ironic, you know, you, you have to stop and we actually put the, the knot in red in all of our graphical materials to just highlight it. It's about inconsistency, the gap between word and deed, like we have our rhetoric and then we have who we actually are and how and our impact on people. If you want to get a little tougher about it, you say it's it's hypocritical. We're hypocritical because we are such good liberals. And that part is true that in a lot of ways we're such good liberals, but not enough. We're not inclusive enough. A good liberal actually wants everybody's needs to be taken care of and wants everybody to be welcome in my value system. We don't live up to that. So we have to look at where we fall short and um and and the, and, the, and the title, you know, does does confuse some people at first, but then when they think about it and they watch the film, they're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> the film explores a diverse mix of Black people's experiences in Boulder. For example, a barbershop owner who's displaced from his commercial space, a barista who deals with micro and arguably macro aggressions in terms of comments from customers daily. And then there's a little girl who speaks so honestly and bravely about standing up to a bully. But then she breaks down in tears when she hears the story of Zade Atkinson, the Naropa student who was harassed by police. It literally broke my heart to watch this little girl so affected at such a young age. Why was it important to share such a diverse mix of stories? It was really important to hear from a variety of people. Um, so people can't say, oh, well, that only happens to adults or, oh, that only happens if you're in this environment or that environment. And we're like, no, there are incidents that happen across the board. They go from, you know, being something like a microaggression to something very serious and scary, like what we saw happen to Zaid. And these are people that we just turn the camera on and let them speak about what's it been like to be Black and Boulder. And this is what come up. If we would have talked to more people more stories uh, would have come up. Celine in particular, her inclusion in the film was very important for me. I'm a mother of two elementary school students and I get questioned a lot living in Boulder and just by people in general. Why would I talk to my kids about racism? Am I harming them by introducing them to these themes of what have happened in history um, and telling them that they might become a target? Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. And Celine definitely proves that by her experience and by the fear that she has. The reason why everybody gets choked up is because that shouldn't happen. That's not right. We are failing this little girl. The schools are failing this little girl by having her be so fearful. There are people that even thought that that, that could have been fake the way that we edited it in. And it's, it's just not. It's just so unbelievable that it's her. So 
In having children, my son experienced his first uh, kind of encounter with racism when he was in first grade. I did talk to him about racism, very age appropriate, and he was able to come out of that incident without losing any self-dignity, without losing any piece of himself, and to be stronger and not believe this other kid because of what I had told him. And it honestly brought out this really great opportunity with the school to talk about inclusion and and racism and what we're supposed to be talking to our kids. To not talk to them about racism doesn't just make racism go away. We have to inform our children on how to become active allies, um, and we have to uh, talk to our children, our brown children, you know, that they need to walk this life with confidence, that, you know, these racist commentaries about them being stupid because of their race or whatever children might say that they're not, it's not true. So it was important to include Celine um, and all the different people just to show the wide range. It's across the board. Yeah, it seems virtually impossible to watch that clip and not be emotional. Can I add something about this? Sure. I look at children. I'm a mom, too. My kids are adults now. But kids don't turn into racist bullies at a really young age. Celine was really young. This started in fourth grade for her. Unless they're taught. Somebody teaches them that they can do it. They hear it somewhere. They start modeling it. So lots of responsibility falls on their parents, their families, their context. Schools, you know, need to do better. Uh, and they often are trying in some way, but often not trying in all the ways they should, because there's a lot of institutional punishing of the victim, really. Uh, Lisa comes out in our film characters. But it's, again, the, the community needs to look at how we're raising our kids so they don't turn into bullies of other children. And we hope that when people watch the film, you know, parents will go home and talk to their kids and say, you know, How's it going for you? What are you here at school? What's your reaction? You know, mm. there's a lot of work done in the home. Katrina, who do you hope sees this film and what do you hope they will get out of watching it? You know, there are two different answers to that. There's before the film came out and since the film has been out. And I was really concerned about honoring the African-American community that's in Boulder and making sure that I was um, giving them voice mm-hmm. and something that if they watch this film, they could say, yes, that's, that's it. That's um, how, how I've been feeling. And it's validated moreover because it's on the screen. And I just really wanted to do that in the right way. And that was my main concern, honestly, um, just to have people feel seen, feel represented, to not have Boulder come out in the white lens as it always does. Let's look at this from the black lens. So that was how it was before the film came out. Um, When the film came out, it was good to hear the feedback from African-American community members that they did feel seen and validated and that there were things in there that they're trying to explain to their white friends and their white friends are like, I don't get it. No, that doesn't happen. Just, just let it roll off your shoulders. But here it is in this film right there. And so they want to show their friends like, see my experiences, they're right here, you know, from the microaggressions on up. But what happened after the film was something unexpected for me that 
you know, the homogenous community, the white community was all really a lot of the people who are coming to the film, all really listening and really receptive and wanted to know what to do next. What are the next steps? How can I be an ally? How can I be an abolitionist? Okay. And I'm getting these questions and reactions that I've never really heard before from white people. And then I see this other larger purpose that I didn't know was possible starting to happen. And at this point, I just want everybody to see this film because apparently this is this is needed everywhere. It's not just Boulder. And we knew that coming into making this film, that this is across the board. I guess the question that kept coming up in my mind is why stay in Boulder? I am staying in Boulder because this is my home and this is where I have decided to raise my children. And there should be no other reason than that. You know, a life path has led me here in state college tuition, met my husband 18 years ago. You know, this is just where I'm staying. I love the mountains. I should not be pushed out of a place that claims so much that it is progressive. I want to stay here and really help to make Boulder that place. And it's been so... um so great to come out with this film because I feel like it's happening and there's no way I can leave now because the change is coming and I have to be here when it happens and hopefully my kids will stay here and go to school. Filmmakers Barrett Strong and Katrina Miller speaking with me in September. Their documentary is This Is Not Who We Are. It screens Monday at the Denver Film Festival, which is now underway. It's also screening this Saturday at the United Nations Association of Boulder County. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us and to the entire team that makes it possible. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.